Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tourist Check podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We are live on the 20th of July in the Sugar Club for a wonderful night of entertainment, including some of the most familiar faces in uh, independent Irish media. So do grab your tickets. The link, the link is in the podcast you're listening to right now. I'm also looking for you to join us, folks. You know how it goes. We need your support. No ads, no sponsors, no RT slush fund, no um, Noel Kelly negotiated uh, barter accounts. So we need you to put your hands in your pocket and help us keep these mics on and the conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for liking, sharing. We really appreciate it. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and as promised, we are back with our good friend uh, and long-time contributor to the Tortoise Shack in, in several guises as it happens because I've often referred to uh, economics professor Konstantin Gordiev as our Arme- Armenian-Russian-Irish friend and it just shows who also lives in Denver, Colorado. So it, it shows he wears several hats, not just identity-wise, but in terms of his his inputs. Konstantin, thanks again for joining us. I, I know I know you've, you're, you're finished for a few weeks and, and you're taking time off to... to, to, to Contribute to these two gobshites again. How are you keeping? <laughs> I'm great. I mean, I'm in Europe nowadays, and it's been actually a fantastic summer, start of the summer. Academic summer, I mean, you know, people think that we kind of, you know, just relax and all, but it's really the time when we do a lot of conferencing. So yeah. you kind of present the papers, which is part of part and parcel of things, but you also get your whole few next year, literally next 12 months of research sorted down. So it's fantastic. I spent about a week in Ljubljana in Slovenia, a great conference run by colleague of mine from from former colleague of mine from Trinity, uh, Brian Lucy. And, you know, um, it's it was great. So now I'm kind of a little bit more in a and, mode and, and, where I can walk and, on. And congratulations on your paper getting um, uh, published the other day as well. Yeah, it? yeah, no, it's that's the whole point. I mean, that's paper started actually um, last year at the same uh, kind of conference as well, which happens every year. And, uh, you know, it's been very productive since because that's kind of fantastic thing after the COVID coming back into this academic research, meeting people, connect, reconnecting them, connecting with new people in person. It's great. It's fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that again somewhere down the line, but we want to talk about there's an old saying and it's uh, it's that even an old snake is dangerous until you cut its head off. And even then, be careful of the head. And I put it to you, Constant, you've written some of the most interesting stuff I've seen in terms of the possibilities of what took place of the of the um, coup that wasn't a coup by the Wagner group's head. Uh, and I'm going to refer to him as the Kremlin uh, hot dog king, um, uh, Prigozhin, General Prigozhin himself. Can I ask you, I, I'm going to start by saying, I don't know in this in this scenario. Are the, who's the old snake? Is it Putin or is it indeed Prigozhin or is it both of them? Can, can I actually yeah. can, can I actually pull this back a little further, Tony? Please do. Explain to people exactly what they, because people really don't understand what he yeah. is. So, and that's a very interesting story. I mean, Prigozhin is a, one of those characters that define Russian, if you want, power brokerages and power politics of the post-independent Russia, and it kind of goes back to the age of uh, oligarchs and all. So Prigozhin starts as this kind of, you know, you know, basically a criminal, petty criminal, um, tried for theft, uh, sentenced to nine years, uh, comes out, um, goes into the perestroika period and late perestroika period, right before the independence, and starts selling hot dogs in the streets. 
I listen, literally, the guy was like the as raw entrepreneur as you can imagine. Zoom it a little bit forward, becomes basically you know a restaurateur. Putin notices him as a restaurateur. He serves Putin some meals. Putin really likes them. Prigozhin gets a contract, 1.2 flipping billion a year to supply the Russian military, okay, with food. Now, that's not particularly tasty food that Putin would probably be eating. You know, I remember eating the Soviet military food and you kind of, you know, you really have to be desperate in order to swallow half of it. The other half, you can't even swallow if you are desperate. But anyways, um, so becomes a billionaire. Uh, as he becomes a billionaire, he obviously, in a typical Russian fashion, starts expanding his empire. But in the untypical Russian fashion, he expands his empire on the foot of his close connection, very personal relationship with Putin and with some other people around Putin, like, say, Petrushev, who is the head of the um, national security there. And, you know, there's you know, another guy who is the head of the uh, presidential administration and so forth. So um, when Putin vacations, remember those half naked, you know, to the chest, Putin riding yeah, horses, yeah. you know, wrestling bears, you know. So stuff know. I post on a Sunday morning. Well, yeah, you <laughs> normally do that out of Tolka River, you know. Yeah. I mean, you and the bear, you know. I'm just wondering where you keep that bear. But anyways, um, some people might want to find that out. But anyhow, so um, Prigozhin is actually kind of in the thick of it. He's the one who travels with Putin. Um, he's a personal friend as well. So he uses this connection to start a very unusual business, which made him a lot of money as well and continues to, well, probably will continue making him money. And this is this private military company, Wagner. Uh, Wagner is basically mercenaries. Um, they used to be just mercenaries. Now they also include the criminals who, you know, for the purpose of the war in Ukraine, they are recruited directly from the uh, prison camps. Uh, but before it was just mercenaries who would fight on behalf of the Russian state, deep state operations, like where the Russian state would not be directly involved necessarily, or where it is involved, like in Syria, but it, the operations that Wagner would undertake would require much more significant loss of life, much more significant risks. And so as a result of that, private company is I want because I want to, to be very it. I want to be very careful on this because again, we don't want to frame it as just being the Wagner group have done war crimes. There's no question Correct. about some yeah. of the stuff that yeah, absolutely. But, but 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 again the, the US were very successful in, in outsourcing stuff to, to um Blackwater, who now became yeah. I think it's X2 or whatever. I, I was just gonna ask yeah. that question. And is there even a loose parallel between? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, of course, there is a complete parallel. Though, of course, neither Americans, nor Europeans, nor NATO would ever acknowledge that there's a parallel because, the, of course, the contractors, the mercenaries on our side, including the likes of the French Legion, uh, Foreign Legion, and so forth, they're the good guys and gals, okay? Um, and they are operating under the governance and the supervision and oversight, rules of law and everything else, blah, 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 versus the Russians, of course, don't. But no, that's, you know, it's pretty much the same stuff. It's, okay? it's both, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's both propaganda because we know yeah. in Iraq, for example, if you committed an atrocity as a mercenary, you were allowed to fly home tomorrow and, and, and not face any punishment. That was the, you know, you, you yeah, they, most of them actually flew back into Iraq and committed yes. some more as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I, so. I don't want, and I don't want to, I'm not, trying to do the the our bad guys are as bad as your bad guys but what we're saying is here is there's no there's no good guys ultimately. there are no good guys i mean right now in a war in ukraine there are good guys okay there is a side which has been attacked beyond the doubts okay even though it employs some not very good guys as well sometimes but that's not the point that's beyond the point okay but in most of the conflicts especially conflicts happening in the 
um, kind of emerging and frontier markets outside of the um, advanced economies and you know kind of more democratic societies, those conflicts are of course they're dirty. There's you know, and everyone involved in them commits some sort of degree of atrocities. It just depends who gets recognized, who is not recognized. And of course, United States not recognized in the International Court of Justice, nonetheless, you know, is very eager to declare, for example, the Russians today as being in violation of the international laws of warfare and the like. So, look, I'm not an expert on that, but it's kind yeah, of no, hypocrisy it, goes but, both but it's, ways. But it's, but it's important to have pointed that out because we want to go back now to the key, key element of what did and did not happen over the last <coughs> um, 48 hours where people, where people made assertions whereby we all assumed, you know, uh, Prigozhin is marching on... On Moscow, mm. he's moving at lightning speed. He's bringing his troops, and you know um, Putin is leaving. He's gotten on a plane. He's turned off its transponder. Um, all yeah, I, I, we're laughing because, but this was the kind of information that we received. And I put it to you, Constant. Is it any wonder where people say, you know, what I'm fed of of experts, but so many of the experts lined up to say, yes, this is what's happening, and and get in line. No, he's he's leaving Moscow now. There is a combination here of truth and reality, and of course, there's also a very thick layers around that truth and reality of surreality or like you know theater of absurd. So it, you know, like, and we can talk about theater of absurd, but there is a real component to it. This is the largest nuclear powered superpower or power, okay, in the world. Um, it is undergoing the you know very rapidly evolving, very unstable, and highly risky process which nobody can qualify. It's impossible to actually qualify it even afterwards. In hindsight, what the hell was this? I mean, Prigozhin himself is on the record, this is not a coup. Uh, repeatedly, uh, he never asserted that it was. He never asserted that there was a need for regime change um, in Kremlin. Um, and he always asserted it was kind of a march for justice. Yeah, okay, he, want, tanks, he, he, you know, he wanted tanks, you know, anti-aircraft missiles and all and, that and, stuff, and as killing, you normally do, and, you know. And people died. Like and people died. So, I mean, about 12 people died on the um, Russian military side, and he claims that there's about 30 people who died on the Wagner side as well. Uh, we don't know if there's any, you know, I haven't seen any reports of civilian deaths. Um, he addressed that yesterday in his statement, um, you know, that it was an unfortunate outcome. He didn't plan for the deaths to take place. Deaths took place because um, there was a... Um, uh, apparently, the Russian forces attacked the or the Russian um, air force attacked uh, his column, um, and uh, as a result of that, they defended themselves and unfortunately took down several helicopters, uh, a couple of the planes, including one very important plane, which is one of those thirty reconnaissance planes, which are highly important for Russian operations. Apparently, Ukrainians were trying to target those planes for ages, never was were able to shut down his troops. Just took it out like that, out you know. But anyways. Um, so that's that's the reality. So we are watching this unfolding, and all of the experts, highly paid experts from the think tanks in the West, uh, paid by NATO, paid by the Washington, paid by Brussels, and so forth, of course, are clamoring or struggling to provide com uh, uh, you know commentary because if they don't, then they are at risk of becoming irrelevant. Um, basically, if the people who are ordering the music you know, saying like, hold on a second, why are you silent? What's going on there? I need information. And you remain silent because you really don't have anything to say because you have no idea what is going on on the ground. You're going to be out of the job because there will be another one who will. 
it's just almost like a consultancy business at this stage. I want to put my hand up here and declare to to uh, listeners. I rushed and said, let's get on the air, Constantine. And you said, no, Tony, give it a few days and let's see how things play out. And, and you were, uh, like you were proven you 100% my, correct. I mean, you referred to my uh, tweets, okay? And I kind of, you know, waited and then I produced a little bit kind of my, here's my summary of my what I'm thinking, okay? And I'm very clearly labeled that this is what I'm thinking. You know, you get people who then say like, oh, well, that's your statement of truth. No, it isn't. It is actually very clearly, I have no idea. So this is my kind of speculation. And a degree of speculative judgment, of course, you know, is probabilistic degree, yes. And, uh, you know, in my view, like at the time when we were posting those things and we were reading the materials, uh, there was probably a good, you know, 20% chance they were accurate. So what? what? What did he gain? I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss Nothing. to understand. At what this he stage, gained. he has. At this stage, I think he has lost pretty much everything. Rogozhin is, 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 yeah. is, is he's he hasn't been heard from. We believe he's in Belarus. Well, he was actually, uh, he he did make a statement yesterday, yes, which is 11 yeah. minutes, you know. I mean, it's pretty lengthy as well. And well, he likes to make videos as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, and apparently his plane today flew into Minsk. Um, so we know that he's probably in Minsk. Um, we know that yesterday was announced that they, um, in the Minsk authorities, Belarus authorities were announcing that they are planning to build and they identified the location for it, a camp for uh, Wagner troops for up to 8,000 of them. Um, so that's kind of, you know, I think is a plan. Beyond that, we have no idea what's going on there. We have no idea how many Wagner troops have crossed into Belarus. Um, when we also, Belarus. what we do know is that Putin has has decided that Wagner will be absorbed in. But that decision was made before, and this is yes. what something. What's even very interesting right now is that today, all of this, you know, kind of chitter chatter class of the, you know, think tankers and uh, you know, thought leaders in that space, they all of a sudden discovered that that is what's happening. But, you know, Prigozhin himself yesterday very clearly said that it was clear around the 20th of uh, June that comes July 1st, the new laws will apply and the private military companies, apparently there's plural, there's more than Wagner of those, uh, will be absorbed into the Ministry of Defense or under the command of the Ministry of Defense. So, so that was what prompted, according to Prigozhin, his weird march. On yeah, Moscow. He, he he picked on two other um, leaders of the Russian military who he That's said right. were not fit for a purpose, and he said this was my big concern coming up to the build up to that. But what one of the really interesting points you made, and again we're in the realm of speculation here, was that people said, you know, and the in my opinion, is Putin more vulnerable than he was a week ago? I think he is. I think he must be. But on the second point, which you made very well, you said. That may actually turn out to be a strength because it may give him the impetus to do things that he wouldn't have done before the march. Honestly, we don't know. And I took a lot of slack for saying that, hey, hold on a second. How do we know? Okay. Um, I mean, you know, like there was few, you know, lads out there and bots, you know, which kind of went at me in a sense that thinking that I'm in somehow promoting Putin. It's not. It's just a basic analysis of what are the probabilities. And Comparatives that come through, uh, you know, I've seen some serious analysts making comparatives that this is like Adolf, you know, Hitler, uh, circa 1944, after the uh, coup by the aborted coup 
um, or failed coup by the uh, military uh, officers against him. Um, but the, I, to me, actually much more close analogy would be probably 2016 coup against or attempted coup against Erdogan. And if you look at what happened thereafter, Erdogan certainly has gone to strength. Now, is there, is there a guarantee that Putin will? No, of course not. I don't know. I don't think so. I'm like, I have no idea what even to assign it as likelihood. When you made that point, uh, you mentioned military analysts. I saw Tom Clonan was very quickly on that and said, really, really good comparison because it opens the opportunity for someone who was seen to be vulnerable to maybe yeah, consolidate. consolidate power. And, yes. and also, by the way, Putin is also painfully aware. I mean, like, look, I mean, people kind of, there's this narrative which has been developed over the last few you know, months that Putin is somehow a Dumbo sitting out there, incapable, you know, falling apart, mentally, you know, deranged and all that. He isn't, okay? He isn't. Um, it would be much better if he was, because then we could see the, you know, kind of uh, trajectory towards the decline and change. But he isn't. So as a result of that, is he aware of the fact that the likes of Shoigu, who is the uh, Minister of Defense, and Gerasimov, uh, who is the Chief of General Staff, of the Russian armed forces, that those two whom um, Prigozhin criticized for many months, very openly and very violently as well, does Putin know that those two are incompetent? Of course he does. The problem is that both of them are very loyal power brokers with significant connections, historical connections. Both of them trace back to the days of Yeltsin. They've survived through the shit. So the yeah. way that you survive through this shit is that you are aligned with other major power brokers and power ministries in Russia. Ministry of Defense is what they represent, but also then, of course, FSB, which is a successor to the KGB, also with the likes of the military intelligence services and so forth. So these are these are the two individuals who have a very deep roots in Putin's administration. They have the trust of Putin because they earned that over the period of time. Getting rid of those two would be extremely publicly painful for Putin and extremely painful for him within the power structures themselves. Now, perhaps Prigozhin gave him enough of the push to say like, okay, we're going to have to restructure the power structure and you, Shoigu and Gerasimov, Gerasimov, are going to move on to more honorary positions, you know, like the National Security Council. Where you is is there a chance? Because you said, you know, they were very close. They were friends. Is there a chance that this is orchestrated well, to do look, just that? I, I mean, don't think so. <laughs> I don't think it is. I, you know, I'm with Tony on that. Uh, but to be honest, I mean, we've seen now it in the last uh, in the last three years or so. Like, I've seen mm-hmm. so much. From the global pandemic shut down entire countries and us wearing masks and distancing, you know, by six feet and all that stuff, all the way to the you know march on Moscow. No, which the main the main hours the, gets almost to the city. You know, it's, I, it's <laughs> important to make the point for listeners' benefit that COVID did not abate until we decided to pay nine ninety nine for a meal in pubs. That's when <laughs> that's what worked. Okay, but, um, but we, no, no. we saw them taking up the asphalt and we saw those pictures and we saw that. There was some movement around Moscow. And there is certainly a perception from the West that he's weakened yeah, over this. Definitely. And there is certainly a perception. Is it justified? Is it justified? I don't think it is. I think, and let me explain why I don't think it is. It's not that he is strong in my view. It is that there is a chance that he is. 
And on that chance, you want to err on the side of caution if you are making any sort of the policy development or strategic response structure to whatever is happening right now in Moscow. You would be extremely stupid in order just to follow this kind of thread of the popular media and the, you know, if you want, you know, national security uh, promoted public discourse about Putin is wounded, Putin is weak. I hope certainly, and I don't think, and I think it is the case um, that people who make decisions in the West, in terms of you know security um, arrangements, in terms of the military arrangements and so forth, actually treating it seriously. So if you look, for example, at the announcement by Germany of stationing of the four thousand additional troops in Lithuania, and NATO announcement as well uh, of the last couple of days, that's kind of indicative. Of course, those things were planned before. But that's also is indicative that they are not treating Putin as, you know, kind of this is, you know, fallen apart, you know, tin pot dictator, uh, which is going to be bounced off by his own, you know, power brokers and replaced with someone else. They're treating it seriously. And yeah, I think that's important to, you know, to do so. It was also then the, the, the corollary to that is two things. If he's if he's not weakened, that's a problem. If he is weakened and he's more dangerous because he has discussed the you know the option of going to use weapons of mass destruction. And then the other side from how do I put this from the from the Western aligned nations, some of the stuff that carried on during that march to Moscow was, you know, if you're in Belarus, now is the time to strike, now rise up, now do this, now. And this was coming from Western media news channels telling people to do these things, to take on Lukashenko, mm-hmm. telling people to strike now. And I, you know, I find the whole thing kind of a bit, it makes me queasy, Constantine, because... um as I said, I was quick enough to rush to like, come on, we'll have this conversation. And you were quick enough to say, no, 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 sit, sit, sit down and let's see how this unfolds. And you were, you were correct at that. But when we look at it in the, in the, in the, even in the medium term, um, I, I put it to you that the conflict in Ukraine, which is central to this, this is the central point. Events on the ground may actually become more difficult because he may now move, just drop this pretense of a special military operation and decide he'll call it a war. And now all of a sudden, now he has conscription. Uh, correct. Absolutely. And Prigozhin gave him, Prigozhin's actions on the 24th of June gave him an excuse to do so. Gave him an excuse to go and, again, there is no guarantee he will. We don't know that. But it gave him a potential and an excuse to start introducing changes in the way both the war in Ukraine is prosecuted by Russia, but also um, how the Russian military is funded, managed, and so forth. So there is a very much a realistic possibility that we're going to see acceleration of the Russian you know, aggression in Ukraine. Um, there is also, of course, an open question whether the Ukraine is you know, going to be up to being able to withstand that type of the level of you know effort that the Russians might actually unleash. Um, there is a question as to how the chain of command is going to evolve. Uh, one of the people who is sitting very interestingly, well, pretty openly, of course, in support of Putin, but at the same time is in a very interesting position of potentially gaining a lot of power, power is General Suravikin, um, who is not known for mincing his words, uh, wasn't very successful um in the um you know 
late last year and the beginning of this year when but was very was, successful previously in doing awful in things in other, yeah yes. absolutely but he was even actually you know he wasn't very successful publicly because we didn't give him nobody gave him in the west the credit to, for it and certainly in russia he didn't claim credit because he's not an operator like prigozhin who does public displays of you know his ideals and ideas and so forth statements um Suravikin, however was successful at consolidating russian defense in ukraine the reason we see three lines, very three clearly demarked lines of defensive structures built in Ukraine by the Russians during the winter is a credit to Suravikin. It's not a credit to the likes of Shoigu and Gerasimov, who are both pretty much, well, I wouldn't say they're incompetent, but they're certainly not leaders who inspire action and also not leaders who are capable of carrying, uh, carrying out that action. So. Well, yeah, okay. very interesting dynamics that are happening right uh, now. And and and, and okay, I want to ask. I want to ask. Sorry, Martin. I'm sorry to push in so yeah, quickly, yeah. But, but just on. But but on the. So obviously, you know, we were told about the spring offensive, and it never happened. And that's because of as you lay, laid out that the the Russian defense lines were were better drawn, and we've seen some of the things. Now that's not. I'm not saying that's a good thing. That's actually prolonging a war that we all wish was not happening. And we wish, you know, Ukraine had its sovereign borders reestablished. But nonetheless, this is the situation on the ground. The big question, the cheekiest question I can ask you is, you mentioned Prigozhin um, and a new compound in, in Belarus, and you and we know the situation when it comes to Putin himself. Um, which one of them should avoid going near uh, second or third floor windows first? <laughs> I think Putin generally always... Oh, by the way, let me just very quickly come. We don't know what's going on with the spring offensive because when the spring offensive started, Ukraine wisely and correctly um, assume the position of no information leakage. They were pretty good about keeping information leakage down to the minimum. What we do know is that there has been some progress by Ukrainian forces. Um, that progress looks to be relatively modest, but that would be expected because they are coming against the very strong defensive structures of Russia. They also have to cross the Dnieper River, which is a seriously big problem, mm -hmm. okay, for anyone, okay? So when we say that there hasn't been success of spring offensive, is the answer to it is that we really don't know the extent to which there has been success, you know? So we have to be cautious about that. But I wouldn't say that there hasn't been any success whatsoever. Um, then the next thing is, of course, you know, if you look at, you know, who is at the threat, both of them are at the threat. I mean, Putin always would be very cautious. Uh, you saw how, you know, this kind of comical almost sight of him sitting at one end of this very long table. I mean, you know, Sometimes we, I wish I had that for ping pong we're, table, we're, so I can actually. When you go to McDonald's, it, you know? you, Martin, people sit like that opposite Martin, but for choice, not yeah, because. Yeah, and they don't eat fucking hot dogs either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Um, <laughs> so I mean, Putin is very cautious in that sense. But my feeling and my suspicion is, Prigozhin is counting his days. I mean, he is dead man walking. You I mean, think? Putin's. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, the Putin statement, both on twenty fourth and since repeatedly including today um has been those all of those statements were very clear he treats prigozhin as traitor everyone else everyone else was, was 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 given no i don't want to say um they weren't forgiven they but they have been given a route back to forgiveness except for him correct correct and so i would uh, I, like you know honestly there's so there's a couple of reasons here does lukashenko have an incentive to keep Prigozhin alive. None whatsoever. Lukashenko is a paranoid, even more paranoid than uh, Putin um, autocrat 
with a more precarious balance of power than Putin. While Putin kind of, if you want, um, plays those political games within the Kremlin and has the significant base of support across his own kind of, if you want, um, power brokers um, and power elites, Lukashenko doesn't. Lukashenko is a classic autocrat who has to absolutely pretty much either smother or suffocate or bludgeon anyone who has any sort of independent thought around him. From that point of view, having Prigozhin, who is unpredictable, you know, prone to make public statements and tends to have money, how much we have no idea, he kept off his you know wealth and what form it is in, we don't know, but he seems to have money. And at the same time, also has a private army, which is loyal to him. Right. I mean, I don't think so. Okay. So I think that Lukashenko has a great incentive to see, you know, uh, Prigozhin basically flying down this light few flights of stairs, you know, and maybe going out of the window. The Isn't wrong it way, terrible? You know? So, you know, it is terrible. A guy sets up a hot dog stand, does well for himself. Yeah. And then yeah. all of a sudden, I mean, these guys are trying to kill no, him. No, I mean, it's like, a- look, I mean, he becomes, you know, he becomes a really world-class beaten war criminal as well. I <laughs> mean, there's absolutely no appreciation there is that. There is that. achievement, yeah. you know? I mean, I agree with you. I mean, like, what happened to with free markets for war crimes? Wait, you know? Where's where's entrepreneurialism in that? Concept? I know, I but, know. But look, I mean, he is the ultimate entrepreneur. You really must look at it that way too. The guy he is, is resourceful. Like, He's very he, he resourceful. recognizes where there is a market, yeah. and also recognizes where there is a niche. You know, but reality is, I this is like, I like you, you kind of like go like when that whole process started. I remember, you know, we exchanged few, you know, tweets and doll as well on that. Um, like, like, you know, my view is like, you know, whom do you, like, you can't support anyone. No, no. I mean, there's one war criminal going against another war criminal. And when yeah. we say war criminal, it's, it isn't an easy statement to make. It's really, really, really nasty. Oh, oh we know. We, you know? we, we've, uh, Angus Kelly, um, who, who worked with Irish, Inter- Irish Rule of Law International, oh, uh, yeah, worked in, tell you how bad it is. And, and he went on, he literally, he was on secondment. And I'm sorry, to, I hope I'm not betraying any confidence, Angus, but he went on secondment for a few months to help look into war crimes. And he decided, this is too important. I have to stay and do more, didn't he, Martin? He was yeah, literally, yeah, you know, yeah. it was, and he'll, he'll give out to me all the time saying, what are you fussing about that for? There are worse things going on. In yeah. The world, and, and he's not, the, 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 the very last question I have on this topic, Constantine, if you, if you, if you bear with me, is, and again, Pardon me, but you told us years ago when we were talking about the inner circle, and I can't think of the name of the the people who surround the leader of of Russia. And it, it doesn't matter whether it's Putin or whether it's someone else. And you had a phrase for it, and I can't I can't even pronounce it, so I don't want Silaviki. to. Silaviki. Yeah. Silaviki. Yeah. So, is a power in Russia. In and the they Russian. and they are the people who will decide who falls out of the window ultimately. Um. My big concern is that that's where um, we may end up with whether, and I mean this for the Russian people, because I, I, I won't make any apologies. I know Irish people who are in Russia making a living and doing that, doing things. You know, you'd worry about people's safety. Should it should it become a um, who was on what side at that at that moment? Uh, and it's 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 kind of worrying when you know. That even with Putin maybe in a position to, to consolidate power now, the, the the group that you refer to may decide. Well, actually, he he is a he is a busted docket. He's finished now, and we may need to move on because there has been a lot of talk, and these are just rumors and stuff that you hear about who the successor should be. 
already and yeah. when you when when an idiot like me in who hangs out in um the interweb hears those rumors you know you'd worry what's happening uh, you do and uh, like i i worry about that as well because um first of all whether putin goes or not most likely he will have to go um the question is how is that process happens and also who is going to replace him Slovakia so are going to drive that process no matter what because they have the guns they have the power they have the ability to control it when that process is going to happen probably the most opportune moment is 2024 because uh Putin will you know he's going to have to make a decision is he going to run or not um and it's an open question at this stage one of the things from Prigozhin's um kind of revolt if you want or march on Moscow that is a fallout from um that we're witnessing still is that uncertainty now is elevated is he going to is putin going to try to stay after 2024 or is he going to transition the power there is fortunately some time right now uh before 2024 uh for the russian you know silviki or power brokers to figure out who is going to be uh in charge unfortunately the previous kind of you know previous years candidates people like medvedev for example have fallen off the bandwagon not haven't, haven't quite fallen out of the windows yet you know but uh, they're certainly not in contention as far as we know so that means that the field of potential successors is extremely extremely opaque um and do you see some some kind of you know um speculations but there isn't a hell of a lot of in amongst the western analysts right now there isn't a hell of a lot of speculation as to who's going to replace putin all of that creates a huge amount of uncertainty all of that creates a huge amount of risk well t- t- i tell you what it creates certainty in it's certain this war is not going to end anytime soon constantine that's absolutely certain unfortunately i don't see that ending you are right you know i see prolonged period of kind of if you want slow down in hostilities um kind of maybe a frozen conflict evolving from a perpetual it. war you know and effectively you're right perpetual war and of course you know one of the things there is you know you kind of think like poor ukraine uh the country is going to suffer for it you know um poor russia as well but russia is an aggressor in this case so i mean you know i'm sorry to say it you know uh like you know it's not nobody deserves a war in this case but there's one party which started it yeah. um that's that's a, I, I agree with you it's tragic absolutely um the 1917 scenario that has been uh if you want discussed by the analysts but also mentioned by putin as well um is uh certainly not something that is likely to happen i don't see that happening can but i don't see it happening because um while putin is an autocrat he does have a power base he relies on and that power base has a great incentives to continue staying in power even more so after the you know this you know after they started the war in ukraine because now they are facing not only sanctions they are facing not only the if you want pressures internally in russia but they also uh, facing a threat of being convicted as uh, war criminals i i'm sorry now i just want to pivot before we wrap because i'm conscious of time and we've kept you away from your your uh, your your afternoon hike but um 
the you wrote one of the best sentences I've ever read in terms of explaining Ireland. And I know you were referring directly to the incidents in RTE, what was happening recently. We've seen the controversy spiral and it will continue to spiral all summer, folks, by the way, because there's more reports in RTE that are due to come out. There's more information. Martin is smiling smugly at me because we're in possession of more information on the Tortoise Shack that will make its way into the public domain. But what you wrote was when the elites live off other countries' money, i.e. via tax-avoiding multinational companies, it no longer registers corruption. Constantine, I think you've summed up so much in that simple sentence. Thanks, Tony. But that's unfortunately is a very sad reality. And this is different reality, of course, from the reality of war and, uh, you know, war crimes. But it is a reality of the fact that our society is governed, and I mean Irish society, is governed by the principles um, that are so far removed from what proper governance, proper social ethical structures should be like. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually it's extremely difficult to even make an argument um, what we mean by misgovernance, what we mean by corruption in Ireland. Martin, you fought for years in terms of the contractors and RTE. It, it, it has taken me, God, 23 years. But actually, 23 I, years. I can pin this down, you see. And I can actually pin down the corruption. I can pin it down correct but, but the corruption you are down. talking about yeah, but, is the corruption that influences millions of irish people uh, billions the, of euro the issues billions that we're of facing, euro the issues we're facing today at rte with a scandal which is very public now and everyone is running around it is influencing maybe one or two very wealthy I, I, I'm, I'm actually laughing at it all because I know in the background that the government know that RTE is the tip of the iceberg. RTE is the tip of the And I know the government yeah, but, know this. But, and but I Martin, see them but, coming but, out with statements. Uh, I know but, they're Martin, lying. Martin, I don't want to get stuck into the into the realm that we're going to go, but I think to go to Constantine's broader point, for, <laughs> for example, for a real example, there was a story in a newspaper the other day that said government are being queried on the relationship with, with PwC. Yeah. And this was from some of the media outlets that have two radio shows sponsored by PwC. <laughs> And yeah. Constantine, it goes to that kind of. And there is nothing wrong with. P- don't take me wrong. No, there's nothing no, wrong with I, PwC. I, I'm not picking I, on. I'm just. I'm not no, picking no, I, on. I'm just. I'm giving a real life, a factual example that's taking place, and you're thinking. And I made the comment is if if you have a problem with PwC, the fox is in the hen house. Hen house, folks. I, I think too when you uh, and another another chap you know, Aiden Reagan. He, he's yeah, you know, Aiden's pretty damn good, and he's pretty damn good, and he's saying. Why do we have a, you know one of the richest countries in the world, but it don't feel that way, and it certainly don't feel that way because and it I, isn't I, because everything from remember the scandals that brought down Greece um, in 2010-2011 started with the scandals of statistics numbers. Okay, yeah, it was all it was all our, it was, our excellence. Ireland has manipulated and massaged the numbers to the point where the international nomenclature, international rules for statistics, no longer apply to us. We even have our own statistics office saying that, oh, well, yeah, we need to have this GNI star in order to explain yeah. who the hell we are. And it's it's frightening because it took like I started on this back in the year 2000 when we started, you know, when I just moved to Ireland as an economist, young economist, you start realizing that this is dodgy stuff. Okay. 
I mean, this country claims to produce more software than anyone else and <laughs> not really, you know, literate in software. Yes. How can that be on earth? Oh, well, sorry. You know, when you say produce means stuff in the diskettes at Microsoft. Yes. Assembly, you know, packaging facility. Yeah. So like, it's just that type of stuff. So you start kind of chipping at this edifice, the facade of, you know, of our exclusivity of our uniqueness of our, you know, mm -hmm. superiority to everyone else. And then you realize that, no, we are like everyone else, except that we pretend not to be. And that pretense is sustained by the fact that we're being paid to be a place where big companies wash their money. A hundred, a hundred percent. And, and can Spot I get on. my final point, Constantine, on this is I spoke to, and I won't name him because he wouldn't, he actually wouldn't say it on the record. So that would be unfair. And I won't quote him directly, but it was an individual I spoke to who is, who has global experience in um, human rights and indeed comes from a financial background. And, and when I asked the question about, because we've seen at the moment it's very topical Ireland's position in regards neutrality and what's Ireland's going to do should they join NATO is it a slap in the face that we remain neutral and it was put back to me almost immediately that this is all theatre the reality is if you want to look at Ireland's reputation in the global world and not just think about you know the uh, the wealthy the wealthy West as we say. Ireland is that, as you said, we're washing the money and the profits that help these corporations avoid the taxes that that don't fund nurses and teachers and doctors and people in other countries. Yeah, it's and it's I'm, other people's money, and yeah. you know, like we leave off that transactional, if you want, relationship. There is an but, argument but, to be made about the Swiss doing similar something like that, a hundred percent fine as well, and so forth. Luxembourg. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but exactly. I, I will say about the Swiss and Luxembourg and places like that. They're clever enough to take some benefit for their people. That's true. We're not. Well, we do take benefit for our people. It's just that our people are well-defined subcategory or subset of the Irish population. That's, That's the right. Dublin 6 and Dublin 4. It doesn't mm. spread anywhere. And else. it's not even the Dublin four that I know of, you know, like Reens. No. It's you know, it's certainly you know it's Ballsbridge, you know. Yeah. Um and I get I know I get into trouble because of course there are ordinary people who live in Ballsbridge as well in Sunday Mount and so forth in Dublin Four. So it's an allegory, really. It's the elites. It goes back to Montrose. You have people who work and uh. you have people who are being paid, and those are not necessarily the people who are overlapping sets. Sometimes I, I love that. I generally don't have a whole lot of patience, you know. I generally do. And Tony will tell you, I'm a terribly impatient person. But with this, I'm being terribly patient. I'm sitting back going, okay, keep going. Keep going. Oh, that really, really. Keep going. Keep, and I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And I let them. Let them do what they want. Because at the end of it all, I'll come back and I go, Welcome up. <laughs> yeah, but, but if, if I could just before we come to the end, I would just say in the meantime, most people, most normal, like as I saw uh, the Irish Times today saying, you know, how much will the tax break benefit you? And they said factually incorrect that the average average workers earning over 52,000, the median wage is 44, the mean wage is 43, you know, that like there were yeah. like, and then I saw the source for this was KPMG. And again, I'm not having to go directly at KPMG, but that was the source. Um, and when you, when you look at it through, through the prism of that, Martin, that's where you start to understand whereby, as Constantine said, it serves a certain cohort of people to talk uh, about this. And, and in does. such a, such in the, one of the most wealthiest on paper countries in the world but uh, I, I i very final point constantine and i'd love to get your your thoughts on this 
there is also going to become the next 12, 18 months, you're going to see um, back in Colorado, you're going to see the uh, the Donald in a race versus uh, yes. <laughs> versus the courts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we have <laughs> the evil versus barely alive. Yet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes, so just and, and 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 then we have you know I actually saw it the other day where um where someone you know people were referring to saying and then the threat of Sinn Fein who I believe have moved so far to the center that they they actually terrify me as a leftist <laughs> you know but but we're seeing this play out in it you know the the at some point it it has to it we have to turn around and say well actually the real problem and i mean this honestly the real problem is we're not actually serious about the real challenges be it climate change be it inequality we're not serious about them constantine we're not no we're not and we are incapable of taking action um as societies generally um there's a there's kind of really disconnect between the real problems we face and the problems that we are trying to discuss and address through the policies. I mean, as you mentioned, for example, tax breaks or the children's hospital. If this is the scale of things on which we make decisions and fail to de- implement those decisions, God bless it. How are we going to tackle things like climate change, like I the know. issue of deteriorating oh, biodiversity just, and so You forth. get so, me depressed. You get me no, depressed. No, I mean, it's not about being depressed. It's being getting kicked in the softer side on which we sit and do absolutely nothing, which is really frustrating to me because I look at the states as well and it's, you know, like, you okay, as I said, there are so budget constraints in the case of Ireland. What's the excuse for the countries like the U.S.? What's the excuse for the countries like Germany, France, Spain, Italy? Like Italy is a great example. I'm in Italy right now, and it is a la-la land. These people walking down the streets, not realizing that they are not just living on a sinking boat. It's like one of those things that that submarine, which got, you know, imploded, you know? It's a slow process of implosion of society. Things are shut down. The towns are dying. The, you know, there's no kids in the streets. The generations are getting older and older and older and older. And they're just going from one dinner to another. And everything is just fine, you know. On that happy note, Constantine, and I'd like to say thank you. And it was a really great analysis. I really did really? enjoy that conversation. Really did enjoy it. Uh, but on, on that note, we have to let you go because you have work to do. And Tony has sunbathing to do. Yeah, and, I, I, uh, I we want to say th- <laughs> we want to say thank you very much, Constant. We always appreciate these conversations. Thank you. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Tony. No it's problem. Good to see I, you guys. I, I want to use one last analogy because Constant used it. If you were the frog in the pot and the turn up the temperature and you can't imagine it, you know that's that's the whole idea of like you're slowly boiling. You don't realize it. If you're struggling to get that analogy, just picture Martin's face. Because he, he has that <laughs> frog at the bot look to him, folks. We'll talk to you all. Like Prigozhin, he is far away from you, Martin. Yes, That's yes. the only reason he is still talking. <laughs> Sitting by the window as well. The, 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 final, the final question is, is, should Martin or Tony go near a second or third floor window? <laughs> well, you're sitting by one right there. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, folks. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.